0: Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at
1: ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're
0: in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon.
1: Psalm 39, translated by Stephen Mitchell. Unnameable, unthinkable God, Lord of the dead and the living, teach us how transient we are and how fragile is everything we love. For all of us flash into being as insubstantial as a breath, Our lives are a fleeting shadow, then we vanish into the night. I was silent and still. I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My only trust is in you. Help me to give up my desires and to let go of who I am. You have granted me this brief existence, which is almost nothing in your sight. May I receive it gratefully and give it back. Turn toward me, touch my spirit. Stay beside me until the moment when I must step out into your final darkness.
0: Let us pray. O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This Advent, we are meditating on the quality of silent nights as we approach Christmas Eve. It is our tradition, as it is in many churches, to hold a beautiful candlelit service that tells the story leading up to Jesus' birth. Our lessons and carols culminate in the singing of the beloved hymn, Silent Night, While Sharing the Light. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child, Holy infant so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. Now, if you do anything this afternoon, you must tune in to hear the choir sing the song as the finale of, tonight, of today's concert. It is truly beautiful and awe-inspiring. Silent Night is an idyllic image I will never tire of listening to our children learn the lyrics in the sign language. But can I just get a show of hands as to whose entry into this world or whose birthing of their own children was quiet and calm like this? (laughs) I got some virulent no's. (laughs) But no, no hands, no volunteers. Strange then, isn't it? that we associate our birth into this world as silent and holy. Sigmund Freud, God help him rest in peace, wrote that we are born into trauma and the trauma of being violently separated physically and psychically from the body that nurtured us forms the nucleus of our unconscious. According to Freud, birth is the first anxiety. So where then is that hint of noise, the mess, and the trauma in our account of the Christ child's birth? Now, I understand the need for modesty and wonder. I'm not asking to alter every Christmas carol. But what do we forget about the human experience when we lose our collective memory that this holy silence followed a physical and psychological trauma? Our lessons and carols are not wrong. Babies do sleep 20-plus hours a day as newborns. But is sleep the holy silence we are worshiping when we sing the song? Do we all wish to return to a state of adored unconsciousness? Our Christmas Eve service just doesn't tell the whole story in our sanctuaries year after year. Funny how that happens, huh? How often do we gloss over the pain and the loss in our church? Not just in formal liturgy, but also in casual conversation. I'm fine. How are you? Good. All good. Silence is not always good. Beyond the calmness of sleep, many of us spend our lives afraid of silence. We fear silence because it reminds us of absence. It can be a sign of our failure or our oppression, a symptom of our despair or an indicator of an estranged relationship. Now, when I visit with new parents, they usually tell me about the events of the birth and how little they are sleeping at night. The stories are action-packed and animated. On the other hand, when I visit the bedside with a family after the death of a loved one, there's a stillness that lingers. The air is heavy like nightfall. Words are not enough. I notice long pauses in the conversation. Is this, too, not an image of silent night? I wrote another verse. Silent night, holy night, all is done gone from sight, wise old mother mourning her child, holy servant so truthful and kind, sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. Now is there a more wordless image than the place where Jesus breathed his last? Calvary represents more than the finality of the death of someone we love but also our failure to protect the vulnerable when our fears turn to violence. Golgotha presented a real problem for 20th century theologians who seriously grappled with the evil of the Holocaust, especially in light of Christian antisemitism and complicity. One described this place of the skull as a horror unredeemed but it is not without invitation to a better future. The terror of Calvary is an invitation to the seeker of faith to eschew Christian triumphalism that preaches simple victories over death and makes enemies of other faiths. In the places marked by the memory of the departed, the weight of silence asks us to step into the unbearable ambiguity and the selfless charity that defined Jesus's final days. In such a silence, it has been my experience that absence and presence co-mingle in possibility. We may not return to our former state, but we may yet meet our beloved in a new form, like the women and disciples who encountered the Christ. We may yet find others to bear burdens and embrace joys. We may make a community with whom we can practice the hope of resurrection. This time of year, along with singing carols, it's a tradition to read the royal proclamation of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child has been born for us. A son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Perhaps this year, though, we should be reading further into the book of Isaiah, in a section known as Second Isaiah, which seems to be written in a different historical context than First Isaiah. Second Isaiah was written in the same era as the 39th psalm. It was composed at the same time as wisdom literature like Ecclesiastes, which recognizes that there is a season for everything—to be born and to die, to mourn and to laugh, to speak and to keep quiet. The exiles have returned from Babylon to Israel, and they are trying to restore the temple. They are recovering from the trauma of defeat and destruction. They are asking how these experiences relate to Yahweh's will. The prophet's words take the form of poetry infused with a silence that held both their present experience of terror and their future hope of a restoration that was just too far out to see clearly. The verses began as a witness to hold the collective trauma and to preserve the history of a community's wounds. But over time, an image of a silent suffering servant emerged in the imaginations of the readers. This possible Messiah was anointed, not just by divine power, but through human vulnerability. For Christians, this is the Christ child For whom we wait. This is the Christ who waits with us through the traumas of our births, the sufferings of our lives, and the last words of our deaths. This is the Christ that waits on us when we leave all these things in our world behind and enter fully into the peace of God. When my daughter was born, and put on a ventilator for several months, I remember reading that trauma was the recognition that we are living one breath away from the unbearable. When we become constantly aware of our mortality and the tenuous nature of our existence, trauma begins to affect how we think, feel, and act. A worldwide pandemic of a respiratory virus that literally has taken away the breath of 5.3 million people has understandably affected how we worship and express what we believe. Some of this shift in consciousness and behavior is good. We have paid more attention to the social fabric that binds us together. We have paid forward more resources to those who are vulnerable and marginalized. Some shifts are different and difficult to process. We are still figuring out who we will be, what we will believe, and how we will express these things both literally and figuratively. Now, trauma affects the brocus area, the left frontal lobe, which holds the language center of the brain. And that allows us to narrate what we are experiencing. But when we feel threatened by a near-death experience or abuse, our fight or flight instinct kicks in. The limbic system, which is the seed of our emotions, ignites, and the amygdala floods our bodies with hormones and with neurochemicals that drive up our pulse and our reactivity. Meanwhile, that higher thinking part of our brain, which controls our executive functioning, shuts down. In order to survive, we become instinct and intuition. We postpone the effort to make sense of what could end our existence if the threat of death succeeds. Now, I have heard a few people express a loss of language to describe what they feel and believe now. Some continue to feel a loss in spiritual imagination and religious inclination, that set in during the first few weeks or months of the pandemic. I empathize deeply with this. In many ways, religion is a language. It's a symbolic realm of ritual music and words. Even the habit of church going is an act of meaning-making and an expression of some belief you wish to embody. These actions are not our full relationship to God. But nevertheless, they are powerful outward expressions of our intentions to be in relationship with the divine. It makes sense to me, then, that in a period that I feel in which we've all experienced a collective trauma, that I hear more confessions like the following. I don't have the words to pray anymore. Church isn't the same for me now. The liturgy and the people feel unfamiliar. I keep expecting to feel the way I did, but I don't. I find I need more time in open spaces, out in nature, or more time to sit in silence. I don't know how I did so much before. My schedule is packed, including Sundays. I need a Sabbath from the performance of doing and believing it all. Does any of this sound familiar? It does for me. On one level, it sounds like a form of social anxiety. I can hear in the concern some of the anxiety and isolation I heard from my own kids facing the return to in-person school. They wondered if they could be who they once were. They worried others expected them to be something they were not anymore. Of course, as they got in the habit of going to class again and reconnecting with friends, some of their estrangement disappeared. But the confessions also echo my own feelings in the early years of my daughter's medical fragility. I remember feeling overwhelmed by the sheer volume of words in our Presbyterian worship. It seemed like we were gathering together to describe and explain God rather than simply be an awful wonder. At home and in prayer groups, I found the moments of silence to be worshipful. As they were a chance to be in the loving presence of the divine and others. Now, did you know that natural silence is not complete absence of noise, but the muted sounds of creation all around us? So, in quiet contemplation, I felt connected to an energetic field that could span the universe and eternity. But in the sanctuary, I felt the gap between what was said and what could not be put into words. Noticing that I didn't preach, someone asked me, have you lost your faith? I told them it felt quite the opposite, that having stared into the abyss of near death and near loss, I felt my faith as undeniable trust in the face of uncertainty. I can still remember the polite shock when I answered, What I have lost is my language for belief. Unnameable, unthinkable gods, Praise Stephen Mitchell's translation of Psalm 39. Lord of the living and the dead, you know how fragile is everything that we love. When my daughter was still a toddler, breathing through a tracheostomy and unable to speak, I went to see a theologian who had written about her own loss of language after a period of trauma. For three years, she suffered constant migraines, rendering it impossible to read, until the danger passed and she knew that she and her family were safe. She told me, I don't think anyone who has walked through the fire ever experiences religion the same. Friends, we have all walked through the fire together the last 21 months it is okay that we are not the same. And if we walk through this time of transition with an intention of presence and listening, the rituals and the language of our religious life as individuals and a congregation may feel different and difficult. But they also may come to burn through some of the half-truths and habits that are not serving each of us well. Across several translations, Psalm 39 speaks to the silence that accompanies trauma by confessing that the words the psalmist once had fail her now. One version proclaims, I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good. When the psalmist finally speaks to God, she asks, What is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am? What, if my day, what have made my days... You have made my days as hand breaths. Even at our best, humankind is but vapor. And now, Lord, what do I wait for, asks the psalmist. It is a question worthy of our Advent season, For it is rooted in humankind's constant struggle with uncertainty and our fear of the passing of time. So let us be mindful in the long nights of winter that it is not the triumphalism of Easter's resurrection that we are counting the days for right now. What we wait for is the tender emerging of an infant in all his wonder and vulnerability to encounter the world in its beauty and its pain anew. This Christ child, like many of you, won't have the words to speak of his experience and his beliefs for many years after his entry into the world. When he does find his voice, he becomes the prophet who stands for the poor and the oppressed, challenges the corruption of authorities, and teaches his followers to heal and to pray. But there will be times, like in the discernment of solitary prayer in the face of temptation, during his own suffering, and in his immediate death, that he dwells in silence. Silence of Christ is as important as the sermons he preached. For in them Christ teaches us not to fear our wounds, our doubts, and our loss of things to say. The love of Christ and the hope of resurrection run deeper than the toxic positivity that pervades our culture and infects our belief systems with its cheap compassion and its simple solutions. There is an Arthurian legend of the Holy Grail that speaks of the many pilgrims who sought to find the cup from which Jesus drank at the Last Supper, and which Joseph of Arimathea used to collect his blood at the crucifixion. The grail was rumored to offer its recipient eternal life. The knight who guarded it lived for what seemed forever, but grew in age and frailty. He was known as the Fisher King. When pilgrims found him, he was feeble and wounded. Yet no one could defeat him with force, nor convince him to hand over the grail through pleading their own case. Only the one who recognized the knight's wounds and asked, what have you been through, could gain access to the grail, the cup of eternal life. Perhaps you, or someone close to you, may not make it to church this year. They may not manage a Merry Christmas this year. Perhaps all you can manage is a what have you been through. But that, dear beloveds, that question is still an authentic message of Christ's light in the world. It's as sincere an expression of faith as the question of the psalmist who asks, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? Our hope is in you. Do we wait to restore our faith in humankind? Do we wait for the next promise of eternal health? Do we wait for the former glory of our religious life? Do we wait for the perfect words to replace the memory of our speechless terror? Or do we accept the silence, the doubt, and the wounds as expressions of the love that we have known for each other and for a God who loves us still? Let us pray. On a silent holy night, you grant us a brief existence. May we receive it gratefully and gratefully give it back. Turn toward us. Touch our spirits, O God. Stay beside us until the moment when each of us must step out into the final darkness through a silent holy night. Amen.